0: Greetings, Society Tastes, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campion Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take live comments and questions from the audience. However, we don't always have enough time to get around to all of the live comments and questions get sent in. But I want to make sure those questions get answered properly in a video. So what we do from time to time is we do these companion videos to get caught up and get those questions answered. And that's what we're going to do right now. So let's not waste any time and dive right into it shall we the first question we're going to start getting caught up on and i lost my spot uh, inconceivably lost my spot okay here we go the first question we're going to get caught up on is the wakandan forever who writes best case scenario theaters survive with Wonder Woman 84 going to theaters and streaming, why can't most major films just do the same thing? Theaters make money, streaming services get subscribers, fans have an option, win win. What am I missing, John? All right, that's a it's a fair question, Wakanda, forever. And a lot of people have been asking that same question. The here's the thing to me the current model, the current model, I mean like pre COVID, the current model model is a win win, right? Disney Plus got millions of subscribers on launch with, without, before COVID, with the current model. And everybody won. People who didn't want to go to theaters to see a movie, they just had to wait like 10, 11, 12 weeks. Like I would, like there's a number of movies that would come out that I was interested in, but maybe I didn't want to go to the theater to see. And I just waited a number of weeks for it to come out on home video and streaming and I watched it then. So it was a win win. People want to see it in theaters, could see it in theaters. People who just didn't want to see it in theaters, wanted to watch it at home. All they had to do was wait a few weeks and they could watch it at home. Win-win for everybody. Studios make money in the theaters. The streaming services get people signing up because of new library content. It was a win across the board. The problem here is this, and you're not the only one to ask this question, Wacondon is, well, I mean, hey, if Wonder Woman comes out and it's in theaters and on streaming, theaters make money, streamers get their subscribers, it's a win-win for everybody. What's the problem? Here's the problem. Now, you guys have probably heard me say for a long time that movie theaters, I've been saying this for years, and I learned this while I was working with AMC theaters, movie theaters operate on ridiculously narrow margins. You guys have heard me say, use that phrase a million times, narrow margins. It's why I keep saying studios have no desire to own movie theater chains. Like a lot of people say, oh, well, now the studios can buy the movie theater chains. Studios have no desire to own the movie theater chains because of incredibly narrow margins. Theaters barely survive because of narrow margins. Well, what do I mean by narrow margins? Actually, let us let me actually bring it up on screen so we can get into this in general. Excuse the mess. This is like from a previous show. These notes are from a previous show, but let me clear these off. Okay. So what do I, whenever I talk about narrow margins, what am I talking about when I say theaters, uh, theaters, narrow margins, all right? What do I mean by that? When we talk about theaters, narrow margins, what do we mean by a margin? First of all, a margin in this context uh, is the amount of money, uh, amount of money you make that is over what you need to survive. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Is our that's what we're talking about when we say our margin? What is our margin? Our margin is that amount of money that you make that exceeds the amount of money you need to survive. So let's talk about it in personal terms. Let's say your uh, personal expenses, and let's say that means rent, um, food, uh, clothing, your utilities and bills, uh, gas for your car. Uh, All that kind of stuff. Let's say your personal expenses, what you need to survive. Let's say you live pretty modestly and it's $1,500 a month. Okay. $1,500 a month is what you need to survive. Now, let's say uh, you've been at your job for a while and your income is, I don't know, let's say $1,800 a month. Well, in this situation here, your margin is $300, right? You need fifteen hundred to survive. You make eighteen hundred. Your margin. You have three hundred dollars in there. That's a little bit of a cushion. So, on top of paying your rent and buying your food and paying your bills and putting gas in your car and and, and you know keeping get your keeping your closet filled with clothes and whatever. You're able to do all that and you still have $300 on top of that. So, you know, maybe once or twice a month, you go out for a couple of beers with your buddies. Maybe you buy a new video game, whatever. Or maybe you put a little, maybe you're smart and you put a little bit of that money away, right? That's margin. But in this scenario, let's say uh, your hours get cut at work and now your income is $1,300 a month. Because your margins were already so narrow, you losing a, a few hours at work and dropping down to 1300 a month, now you have no more margin. Now you're not making enough money per month just to meet your basic personal expenses, right? So now something's got to go. You either are going to lose your apartment or you can't drive your car anymore or you're not going to be able to eat properly or your heat's going to get turned off or your electricity's going to get turned off. I mean, something's got to give. You've just lost your margins. It's gone. Okay. Since we put that in personal terms, let's look at AMC. Now, we're just going to use hypothetical numbers here, okay? We're just going to use hypothetical numbers. A lot of people perceive that a movie theater like AMC theaters, that they're – uh, let's say cost of operations, let's say just for argument's sake, we're just making up theoretical numbers here, is uh, $1 million. And their income is, you know, I don't know, $9 million. The perception of these big movie theater chains is that they have massive margins, that they have in this situation here, our per- the public perception is that these movie theater chains have like eight million dollars of margin, right? This huge margins, but the reality is, in, in these, just to follow through with the allegory here, in this example of well, if their cost of operation, again, this is just theoretical numbers here, is one million dollars, then in reality their income is actually closer to like one point four million maybe even closer to like 1.2 million. In other words, their margin is really small. Okay. Their margin is small. Okay. Now, just like we were talking about, well, what happens? It's great that you, you make $1,800 of income and it's great that you have a $300 margin, but what happens if your income takes a little bit of a hit? If, you're a little bit, if your income takes a little bit of a hit and you're suddenly down to 1300 a month, all of a sudden now you don't have enough money to keep the lights on in your apartment. All of a sudden, you don't have enough money to pay your basic personal needs and expenses. And suddenly now you're losing your apartment or you're losing your car or you're having your heat turned off or something like that, right? Because your margins aren't big. It's not like you had $1,500 a month in expenses and you made $7,500 a month and you had massive margins. You had small margins. Okay. How does that play out with AMC? And we're just using AMC. This could mean Regal. This could be Cinemark. This could be anybody. But the reality is this. When movies go to streaming and theaters at the same time, a conservative estimate that I read in the major trades was that theaters will lose out about uh 30% to 40% of their revenue they're going to lose 30 to 40% of their revenue in other words if you take 100% of the people who would have gone if Wonder Woman 84 was only playing in theaters like only playing in theaters the 100% of people that would have gone to see the movies 30 to 40% of those people are now just going to stay home and watch it on HBO Max or Disney Plus or whatever movie we're talking about, whichever service we're talking about. All of a sudden, in this situation here, in this hypothetical situation here, where the income is is 1.2 million, so they've got a little bit of a margin, well, suddenly you take away 40%, and now you're talking about, I don't know, like 0.7 million in revenue. Just like when you lost some of your income, you didn't have enough money to make your expenses. If all of a sudden these theaters lose that thirty or forty percent of of theatrical income, well, what happens? That margin, that razor thin margin they had of, of you know a surplus of point two million dollars, and again these are theoretical numbers. But because the margins are so small, the industry cannot survive a thirty to forty percent hit. The industry simply can't. The theatrical industry cannot survive a thirty to forty percent hit. It's not like the industry had massive margins and therefore they can take a little bit of a hit and will still be okay and they'll still be making more than whatever their theoretical operating expenses are, right? If suddenly only 60% of the people go to the theaters to see Wonder Woman that would have gone to see it. AMC Theaters, Regal, Cinemark, they've now gone from a situation a scenario where they're making a little bit of a, a money to they can't keep the lights on and they can't keep the doors open and they can't pay their staff, they can't afford the rent of these huge multi-million dollar complexes where they have to pay rent in these shopping centers and whatever. Now the margin is gone and they can't survive. And so when people talk to me Wakandan about, you know, well, I don't get it. Why can't they also have this and have this? Well, because doing one thing means killing another thing. The current model is everybody wins. The current model is everybody wins. Everybody gets a choice. You can go see a movie in theaters now, or you can wait a little bit and wait to watch it at home. This model actually kills one of the options. Because theaters have razor thin margins. Anyway, I, I'm sure I've gone on too long about that already. But I just, I've just i had so many people. You're not the only one to ask about that, Wakandan. And, and it, it's a understandable question to ask. I hope I've clarified that a little bit. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. All right. Thanks for writing that in, Wakandan. Uh, next up, Ben Rayner writes, Hey, John, hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thank you, Ben. Here's my question. Do you think if the directors got the same deal as Patty and Gal, uh, would they still be upset? Are they upset because they weren't told or the concept of day and date in general? Uh, As always, bring on the filthy. Okay, so what Ben is referring to is, of course, you guys heard that Denis Villeneuve, now um, Judd Apatow has jumped on it like crazy. Uh, Christopher Nolan, a whole bunch of directors have come out and have been blasting Warner Brothers for this move. A lot of the directors, like Denis Villeneuve, the director of Dune, was really upset because they pulled a fast one on him. When he made that movie, the understanding was this is a movie that we are putting in theaters. That's why he agreed to make it. And they pulled a fast one on him. And not only did they pull a fast one on him, they didn't even bother to tell him. They didn't even tell him, let alone consult with him, get his opinion, get his input before they make the decision and go and make these announcements. He found out about it from the news, just like you and I did. That's how he found out about it. That's how everybody found out about it. Even the company that paid for Dune. Legendary Pictures, Warner Brothers financiers, their partners in it. They weren't even notified. They weren't told, and now that's why Legendary is taking Warner Brothers to court and they're going to win by the way. I'm just spoiler alert, Legendary is going to win that. Now what they're going to be seeking, I don't know. I don't know whether they're going to be seeking a court order to put it out in theaters exclusively or if they're going to be seeking monetary damages from Warner Brothers, I don't know. But whatever it is, they're going to win. Anyway, And a lot of the agencies were upset as well, because whereas Wonder Woman 84, in my personal opinion, I thought Wonder Woman 84 was treated fairly, right? They assess, they say, we're going to pretend like Wonder Woman 84 was going to make a billion dollars at the box office, and everybody who stood to make bonuses from the box office results of Wonder Woman 84, we're going to pay you out those bonuses as if the movie made a billion dollars in the box office. And I thought that was a fair assessment. And Wonder Woman is one of these films, too. Remember, Wonder Woman is wasn't just waiting to come out. Wonder Woman originally was going to come out like a year ago. Remember that Wonder Woman 84 was originally going to come out like a year ago. And it's been moved release date several times. So it's a different situation for Wonder Woman 84. As a result of that, people like Patty Jenkins, the director, and Gal Gadot, who is, of course, the star of the film, they made $10 million paydays on that movie because Warner Brothers assessed the value at a billion dollars at the box office. However, all the films coming out in 2021 did not get that same treatment. They got much lesser deals than Wonder Woman 84 got. And that made a lot of the agencies very upset. So Ben is asking a very logical question. Do I think all these filmmakers and directors just got upset because they didn't get the same deal that Wonder Woman 84 did? I think it's not – I don't think there's one answer to that, Ben. I think it's all of the things you mentioned. And it's accumulative. First of all, they're pissed off that their movies, which have not been delayed a year already, are suddenly now going to be on streaming. On top of the fact that they were never consulted, and it's their films, and they were never consulted, never talked to, never given a heads up. On top of the fact that they treated a couple of other movies, The Witches and Wonder Woman 84, completely better than they're treating all the other movies in the 2021 bucket. It's not any one of those things that I think have made all the filmmakers and stars upset. I think it's the collection of all of those things put together. That's what's upset them. That's what's made them angry to the degree that they are. Any one of them probably would have upset them a little bit, but I think it's all three of those things together that have probably uh, made it a big snow snowball of crap that has gotten everybody upset and makes everybody mad at Warner Brothers right now. Uh, El Postino, the postman, writes, the thing I will miss most about AMC theaters is the popcorn. When I was single, I used to go to AMC to see crappy movies I didn't even care about. Uh, I didn't even care about seeing just to get a hot buttery tub of their mouth watering popcorn. What will you miss most about AMC? If AMC does indeed disappear, I mean, they're. Th- we talked about this the other day. Um, it looks like they're going to run out of money in January. Like next month, they're going to just flat out run out of money and then they're done uh and they're they still owe 400 million in back rent to all the places that they rent their movie theaters from and all that kind of stuff. It's they're in a bad shape, man. They're in bad shape. I'll keep my fingers crossed for them and I hope they survive. The thing I will miss most um is about AMC specifically is the prime theaters. The prime theaters were uh, they completely ruined me for any other regular theater uh, just with the Dolby uh, dub- double laser projection system, which is the best in the industry, the Atmos sound, the motorized leather recliners with these subwoofers built into the seats so that they'd rumble just a little. It's not, they're not obnoxious like some of the other theaters that have these big sensory things in the chairs, just a little bit of the right rumble in the seat at the right times. It was just magnificent. I I love it. It is the the prime theaters that I will miss most if AMC uh, gives it up, El Postino. All right, Sam writes, all the new Star Wars content seems great, but I kind of wanted something in the now slash present show or film since the Skywalker saga just disappointingly wrapped, but maybe they have something just not revealed. Also, over under 10%, we see Ahsoka in Kenobi. Well, I mean, getting... About seeing more Star Wars content in the quote-unquote present, right? Because, I mean, Star Wars story happened all over their timeline, but the present in Star Wars is always what's the most uh, up-to-date thing, and that, of course, is the, the end of The Rise of Skywalker. That is the technical now. That's the present, Right. Who knows when and where Taika Waititi's film is going to happen? Who knows when and where this film that uh, Kevin Feige, this Star Wars film that Kevin Feige is going to produce for Lucasfilm, when that's going to happen? I have very little to zero doubt that they will come back and tell stories in the present. What happens after the events of The Rise of Skywalker? Okay, now the galaxy is free of the First Order. There are going to be new threats to to consider. We're going to have to reform the new, new Republic, because we've already had the Republic. We've had the new Republic. Now we're going to have to have the new, new Republic. Um, I'm sure they're going to come back to that. But right now, they're building around the timeframe of the Mandalorian. So we've got Mandalorian, Rangers of the the Republic, and uh, Ahsoka Tano, all happening at the same time. They're going to have interconnected stories then we're gonna have stuff coming up we know in the high um high republic i think that's what they call it the high republic era the acolyte is going to be happening right around the end of the high republic era we know that that's happening there. we have no idea when rogue squadron's happening we have no idea what time frame that's happening in and the books and the video games don't give us any indication because patty jenkins says it's not any of the stories from the books or the video games they'll get influence from there but so we don't know when that's going to happen but even if none of these current new projects are going to be in the present i'm certain they will return to it sooner or later all i know is that i think all the stuff they announced looked really good so i'm I'm very excited about sam all right next up neo braveheart writes john have you seen the youtube video from phantom entertainment proving without a shadow of a doubt that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It absolutely is not a Christmas movie. Just go and ask Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis will tell you, it's not a Christmas movie. Anyway, uh, they even used math to do it. If nothing else, you get a good laugh watching, heck, I did. I don't need to see that. Uh, no, here's the basic argument for me about, a, a movie is a Christmas movie. If the theme of Christmas is part of the central theme of the movie. In Die Hard... Christmas just happens to be when the events of Die Hard take place, but it has nothing to do with Christmas. It could have been a New Year's party that was happening at the Tower. It could have been, I don't know, a Thanksgiving Day uh, festivities going on. It could have been a Valentine's. Maybe it was the company was important, Valentine's. Day. But the point is, Christmas had nothing to do with it other than that happens to be the time of year the story occurred. And that's why to me and Bruce Willis, that Die Hard is indeed not a Christmas movie. It's a movie that happens at Christmas, but it's not a Christmas movie. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, I know a lot of people disagree with me on that. And that's perfectly fine. All right. Mischievous Gremlin writes... Hey, John and Rob. Rob's not here, obviously. Since we likely won't be getting another Avengers-type uh, event movie in a long while, do you think Marvel is trying to make both Spider-Man 3 and Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness big event-type films to make up for no Avengers movie? Well, I mean, here's the thing, though, Mischievous Gremlin. Every... Marvel approaches all of their movies as big event movies. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about standalone Ant-Man. Even in Ant-Man, you had Falcon show up, right? But It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Ant-Man or whatever, but just look at something like Captain America, Civil War. Look at Thor Ragnarok. We had Thor and Loki and Valkyrie and Hulk. Um, I mean, they kind of approach all of their properties as being big event properties. So, but if we really wanted to force it into a category and into a box, I would say that things like multiverse of madness is going to fall into the box of a Thor Ragnarok type film as opposed to an Avengers type film you see you see what I'm saying there I feel like it'll more one fits more than the other even if you look at Winter Soldier I mean you had Captain America and you had Black Widow right you had you had uh, 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 Nick Fury I mean so I would say Doctor Strange is really going to fit more into the category of civil war or of a thor ragnarok and uh winter soldier that's what it feels like to me but again i feel like marvel's mentality is every property they put out is a big event type thing so that's kind of how i see it at any rate mischievous gremlin good question man all right next up adrian e writes hey john love the documentary thank you so much man and thank you for giving me an excuse To plug my documentary, uh, for those of you who do not know, my documentary, Movie Trailer's a Love Story. Plug, 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 plug. Uh, Movie Trailer's a Love Story is available now internationally worldwide wherever you live you can go and check out my documentary movie trailers a love story obviously you can tell what it's about due to the trailer or due to the uh, name of the movie it's about movie trailers Uh, at vimeo.com slash on demand slash movie trailers and if you don't happen or if you happen to live in the US and the UK you can also get it on Amazon so you can just go to Amazon and search for movie trailers a love story and you guys can go and find it there and thank you again man for giving me an opportunity to play my movie. Anyway, uh, love the documentary. Thank you so much for that, Adrian. I recently saw the Johnny Cash biopic Walk the Line. I loved it. It's easily one of my favorite biopics up there with Straight Out of Compton. What are your thoughts on Walk the Line and what's your favorite biopic? Well, I mean, Walk the Line is amazing. I, I love Walk the Line. Um, Joaquin Phoenix might be his best movie ever, his best performance ever. And I include the joker which he won an academy award for but walk the line is probably his best performance and not i'm not even big on biopics about musicians but walk the line is great my all-time favorite biopic would probably have to be gandhi with sir ben kingsley Gandhi. that movie's just uh, like all sorts of amazing all sorts of amazing uh milk is also very good amadeus is really good Um, I guess we could have a debate as to whether the social network is a biopic or not. I kind of do consider social network a bit of a biopic, but I love that one. Capote with Philip Seymour Hoffman is another one of my favorites. Uh, I mean, I, and I certainly love straight out of Compton as well. That was great. But yeah, my favorite would probably be Gandhi. That's actually probably my favorite one, Adrian. Anyway, thanks for sending that in, man. All right, next up, an anonymous viewer writes, uh rip to tommy yeah i heard about this tommy tiny lister i'll always remember him as debo from the friday franchise have you seen the friday films and if so which is your favorite also i love the documentary thank you so much man a uh, best documentary oscar is in your future john well we'll see uh not for this one but uh maybe i'll make another one soon um listen when i think of tiny lister and and this is showing my WWF roots back when it was still called WWF, not WWE. Um, When I think of tiny Lister, all I can think about is as him as the villain in that Hulk Hogan movie. And then because he was just so massive and huge and had so much natural charisma, they brought him actually into the WWF to be uh, an antagonist to Hulk Hogan's hero and he was Zeus. That's what they called him in the WWF. Zeus with his his eye going the other way, which was such a marquee look for him. And then of course, you know, when he he also he popped up in the dark Knight, right? Everybody everybody instantly recognized, I was like, holy crap, they got Tiny Lester in Dark Knight. Because he's on the boat scene. Of course. Yeah. But but I, I have to admit, man, when I I think and there I didn't hear official word. The last thing I read was that it was COVID-19 related, which is I mean, that just adds extra insult to injury with the era that we're living in but at any rate. I I don't know that for certain, but when I read, they hadn't concluded the cause of, of his death, but they're saying he was experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. And as so I don't know if that had to do with it or not, but yeah, man, I mean, I get the, the, uh, the Debo thing, but for me, when I think of him, I will always think of him in professional wrestling as Zeus fighting Hulk Hogan. And dude, that, dude, I still remember at the time. And I was a kid, man, but It's like I rarely ever saw a physical specimen like him, man. Like he was an Adonis. Like absolutely had a great charisma and everything too. He was such a great heel. He was so great. Anyway, uh, so I was so sad to hear about him passing. Uh, The Wakandan Forever writes, uh, I'm excited for One Woman 84 one nitpick Kristen Wiig always gets cast as a mousy secretary type in Ghostbusters too I get it's Gal Gadot, uh it's Gal Gadot but come on Kristen is beautiful is there an actor or actress you find attractive but gets cast in unflattering roles Um I don't think there's anything unflattering about the roles Kristen uh Wiig gets I mean even if you look at her breakout movie in Bridesmaids I mean she's not supposed to be you know like some john a level homely you know home alone kind of creature or anything like that she's supposed to be pretty and all that kind of stuff and i don't think there's anything i I think it's just all it's a part of it has to do with our perception of her because of her comedy stylings right a lot of it has to do with our comedy stylings now look i love Kristen wig i think that girl's hilarious but Even I, who totally trust Patty Jenkins, when I heard that she was cast as Cheetah, even I went, okay, it's a little strange. I mean, she's super talented. I trust Patty Jenkins, so I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. But even I found it a little weird. I was very relieved to hear a bunch of my uh, colleagues who work in the same industry as me who have seen Wonder Woman already say she's actually fantastic in it. So that's great to hear. But I think a lot of it is just perception, Wakandan, seriously. And I think a lot of it also comes from the comedy that she does. So that, that's my take on it at any rate. All right. Thanks for asking that, man. And only 10 more days, only 10 more days till we watch Wonder Woman 84, all of us. ZMG Ruler rights. I'm not mad at Warner Brothers. Greed is good. But one has to wonder what Warner Brothers thought would happen by not telling people about the 2021 plans. That everyone would sing Kumbaya, even if a compromise is made, can Nolan, Villeneuve, and other DGA members ever work or even work with WB again? I don't know, man. I don't know. Like, when it was just Christopher Nolan coming out and talking about the move, right? I thought, okay, he's upset. He's upset but I think cooler heads can prevail and I think they'll still work together again. But then when I heard, when I read Denis Villeneuve's article that he wrote in variety, he's the darling of the industry right now. Denis Villeneuve is the darling of the industry right now. And when he, a good Canadian kid, like unloaded both barrels in that scathing op-ed in, uh, in variety that he wrote about Warner brothers and HBO max, And he started expressing that he's been talking to the other directors as well. I don't know, man. It's not a good look. Like, there is a reason that Warner Brothers acted like a cowardly little thief in the night with this thing. There's a reason they kept it a secret from their financing partners, from their production partners, from their filmmakers, from their directors, from their actors, from the agencies that represent the movies. There's a reason they kept it a secret because they knew they were going to get pushback if they started talking to everybody about it. And so Warner Brothers thought, let's just announce it, and then there's nothing anybody can do about it. At least that's what they were hoping. I don't think Warner Brothers counted on, I mean, maybe they know Nolan is very, very independent. So maybe they knew they might have to deal with Nolan. I don't think for a second, especially Denis being a good Canadian kid, I don't think they thought for a minute that, like, somebody of the stature of a Denis Villeneuve would come out and write something like that, like straight up directly attack the studio that he's made this movie for. I don't think he anticipated the entire DGA considering boycotting Warner Brothers. I don't think they thought it was a possibility that all these dominoes would fall. I thought they just thought, you know, we'll take some grief, but if we can sneak out this announcement without anybody else finding out that we're going to make the announcement, then there's nothing they can do about it. It's already public. And they're finding out that they were wrong. But yeah, make no mistake. When somebody acts really sneaky and when somebody acts really shady and really shifty, like Warner Brothers just did, keeping all of this a secret from the financers, from the production companies, from the directors, when they act like that, there's a reason they're acting like that. It's because they know they're wrong. And they know everybody's going to disagree with them. And they just, want to stick, they just want to slip it out so then there's nothing that anybody else can do about it. It's already out. It's public. Nope. No one's going to fight us on it now because it's out there and it's public. Didn't work. Now, I, I don't know that Warner Brothers is going to change directions. Uh, I think they may just stomp their heel down, say, nope, this is what we're doing. And filmmakers won't work with them again. At least the best filmmakers won't work with them again. Uh, but then again, we can say that. Money talks. Money talks. You can have some director. I don't know, pick a director, maybe Edgar Wright. And I'm just pulling Edgar's name out of, out of the ether. I don't think Edgar's connected to this in any way, but you know, Edgar Wright can say just representing any director out there, man, I hate the way Warner brothers just treated filmmakers. I'm never going to work with Warner brothers again. Phone rings. Yes. You want to pay me $30 million to make another uh, Scott Pilgrim returns. Okay. Money talks, man money talks So who knows what's going to happen all right uh daniel writes hey john how long before someone from marvel or star wars will leave an announced project uh, over due to creative differences given marvel and lucasfilm's track record of creators leaving i hope this does not happen to patty jenkins star wars movie well it's not so much it's not nearly as much with marvel as it is with star wars like listen every studio like whenever i would point out kathy kennedy's And remember, I'm a big Kathy Kennedy fan. I think she is, if not in the top three, if not the greatest producer in Hollywood history, she's in the top three. Steven Spielberg, the greatest filmmaker of all time, he calls her the best producer of all time. And I'm a huge fan of hers. But just because you're great at one thing doesn't mean you're going to be great at another thing. And I do not think she has worked out as the head of a studio. And one of the main reasons... I don't think she's worked out is because she has failed at the first primary, most important job, making sure you're direct that you pick the right directors and the directors you pick are completely on the same page with you. And she, I think she went through six projects with five director turnovers. It was crazy. Like it's, it's, it's unprecedented that type of record of futility. It's not good she constantly time and time again was bringing on directors that she was not on the same page with and they were not on the same page with her and it ends with them going, they they lost time, they lost money, they lost all that kind of stuff because she didn't know how to do that part of the job. And whenever I would bring that up, somebody would inevitably say to me, well, Judd, every studio goes through that. And that's true. But to a much, much smaller scale. Like for something like Um, Warner Brothers or something like the MCU, you're talking about every, you know, I mean, not counting DC (laughs) because, you know, Flash alone has gone through three sets of directors and four sets of writers and they haven't even started shooting that movie yet. So aside from DC, if you look at Warner Brothers or Sony or Marvel specifically, you're talking about, yeah, maybe one high profile departure every eight to 10 projects that'll happen not four or five high-profile departures out of five or six films. That's a ludicrous percentage. Absolutely ludicrous. Look, I believe that Kathy Kennedy has already planned her departure out of Lucasfilm. I believe she's probably going to be there like another year. I believe before the end of 2021, Kathy Kennedy will step down. And she will do so being better at her job than she's ever been. Because I I believe, you know, we talked about this on the John campus show this morning. I believe one of the biggest problems she's had was doing this new trilogy of films without having a roadmap and without having a plan. Yeah, we'll just wing it. Let's just go film by film and we'll just wing it. And we'll see where we end up instead of sitting down with a team of writers and creators and saying, this is our three movie structure. Leave a little bit of flexibility to make some changes in between each movie. Yes. But generally speaking, here's our roadmap for the next three films. Here's our story. Instead of that, she just went, yeah, dad, we'll wing it. Let's We'll just figure it out as we get there. Like they get in their car to drive to set. Hey, has anybody actually written this movie yet? I ah, don't worry about it. We'll just get there and we'll, we'll figure it out. I mean, that's, I'm obviously exaggerating, but that's kind of how it was though, right? She has shown that she's learned from that mistake because they put out that video with the uh, High Republic era. And they, it shows that they had got this big retreat center, brought in all these top writing creative minds to flesh out what is the High Republic and all the different ideas. And she's shown, listen, I learned from this horrible mistake I made with the, with the trilogy that I oversaw, not having a plan. We're going to make sure we have a plan. Also, now look at the state Star Wars is in right now. People are more excited about Star Wars right now than they've been in a while. Between another season of Mandalorian, between uh, Ahsoka, between the Acolyte and Rogue Squadron and Obi-Wan Kenobi and all this stuff. People are very excited right now. And I think Kathy Kennedy can now leave this job knowing that she got better at the job by the time she left. Uh, But I still think it's time to leave. I think a new person needs to come in and now take it from here. But I will say, I think Kathy is going to leave, positioning Star Wars in a better place it was than just a couple of years ago. Which is, you know, a lot to have to do with her own fault. But she's corrected a lot of the stuff. So, so that's kind of my take. But here's hoping she has also learned to take your time in picking your directors. Make, don't just pick the hot flavor of the month as a director and believe that they'll just come to heal because you're the head of Lucasfilm. Take your time. Actually meet with them more than three or four times. Make sure that the filmmakers and you are 100% on the same page. And I have a feeling if Kathy Kennedy has learned from those other mistakes, I'm hoping she's learned from those mistakes as well and that we won't see any high-profile departures. Um and so I'm 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 will I'm willing to bet five bucks that Patty Jenkins will indeed direct this Rogue Squadron movie. That's what I'm thinking at any rate. All right, Daniel uh Danielle also writes, has something changed with the MCU narrative with releasing Falcon and Winter Soldier first before Black Widow? Uh, Black Widow movie release Uh, it was supposed to be the other way around with uh, Widow first then Falcon and Winter Soldier uh, this year did pandemic change plans was it that or was it supposed to be the other way around I can't I honestly listen everything has changed so much everything has changed so many times between so many properties being pushed and all that kind of stuff that I honestly can't even remember now off the top of my head, which was supposed to come first, I was—I I, honestly I can't remember now. Uh, look, if they did change it, it probably would have meant they just during their reshoots they probably just had changed a couple of things and some reshoots and made it fit. At least that's my guess. At one point. But yeah, again, we've seen so many date changes and so many things move around. I can't even remember what was supposed to come first now. I just want to see what WandaVision. Just get me WandaVision in January so we can start watching this stuff. It has been so long since we've seen any MCU content. Okay, next up. Uh, Mikey Roberts Meyer Burnett writes, "Hey John and Rob, Rob's not here right now, obviously. Uh, when do you think we'll see more Jedi-focused Star Wars movies? Not Sith versus Jedi per se, just anything involving the Jedi pre or post Skywalker saga. I adore all, I adore, I adore all well-told Star Wars stories, but I love Jedi. P.S. Are Chris and Aaron?" Okay, Uh, Aaron's great. Again, the only reason Aaron hasn't been in is because there are new restrictions in Los Angeles. You're not supposed to have people outside of your household in your household. So, uh, and Aaron is a little bit, uh, immune de- deficient because you know of her cancer background and things like that so we just want to be extra extra careful we're trying to get aaron set up with a proper home home studio set up like robert has so we can skype her in like we do with robert so hopefully that and with chris yeah she seems to be doing well Uh, She just dropped a note on my Instagram the other day Um, and hopefully somehow, some way we'll get on the other side of this thing and we'll be able to get Chris on again sometime soon. Here's here's hoping Um, as far as Jedi stuff goes. Don't forget, we've got Obi-Wan coming. We've got Obi-Wan coming. We've got the Ahsoka show coming. Uh, Who knows what the Taika Waititi thing is so yeah i th- i think we're gonna get a good amount of jedi stuff here pretty soon thankfully not all jedi stuff but uh it seems like we are poised to get a, a good amount of jedi stuff uh, just even just in a, with ahsoka and uh obi-wan on its own let alone whatever kevin feige's thing's going to be and whatever taika Waititi thing's going to be so i think we're in good position here mikey all right next up james germain writes Hey John, new season of Letter Kenny is coming. Pitter patter, let's get at her. John, pitter patter. I I could not believe like Letter Kenny is another one of those Canadian shows that I knew nothing about because it actually started after I moved out of Canada, and you guys introduced me to it. Like seriously, you guys are the ones who introduced me to uh, Kim's Convenience, to uh, Schitt's Creek, to Letter Kenny. It's unbelievable. And don't forget January, January, James. We also have new. The new season of Kim's Convenience is coming, and now everybody will have more renewed interest in it because Mr. Kim is in Mandalorian. He's the X-Wing fighter pilot who keeps showing up. Uh, He's the older Asian guy. Good Canadian kid, by the way, that guy. And um, uh, Simu Liu, who plays his son in Kim's Convenience, is the new Shang-Chi in the MCU. So hopefully that'll be extra motivation for people to check out Kim's Convenience. It truly is a absolutely fantastic show i can't believe i was so late to the party on that and so is letter kenny by the way all right ben c writes any thoughts on a possible regal amc merger to keep them afloat been a huge fan since the amc movie talk days love your show well thank you so much for that it, it really wouldn't help either of them very much um regal belongs by the way regal can't merge with amc regal belongs to another company regal belongs to cineworld Uh, which is their parent company, their owner company, that's based in the UK. Um, So you're not going to see. But even if they did merge, the reality is it wouldn't help their situations all that much. It's still rent on an individual building still costs that much money a manager still costs money. His assistant manager still costs money. The facilities manager costs money. The janitorial staff costs money. The ticket takers' salaries cost money. The kids working behind the concession stands costs money. The upkeep of the theaters and screens still costs money. The administration of those buildings still costs money. It, it might be a little bit of a cost savings, but it honestly wouldn't, it wouldn't save much. It wouldn't save much. So, it's, I, I love the way you're thinking, Ben. You're trying to think with some creative solutions here, and that's the way we should all be thinking. Um, but unfortunately, that one solution has two big problems. One, Regal isn't their own company. They belong to somebody else, so they can't merge in with AMC. Uh, the second is it really the cost savings would not amount to all that much and uh, not nearly the amount of money they need. To, to keep these places afloat. So uh, keep thinking though, keep thinking, keep thinking outside the box. Like you are, maybe one of us can come up with a solution for it that they're not coming up with yet. All right. M N H B 2001 writes, Hey, John and Rob tenants home release is today. Do you plan on rewatching it? And if so, uh, would love to hear your thoughts after a rewatch with subtitles. I say it took three times for me to appreciate it and understand the third act. Yeah. Listen, I was able to basically understand the movie. But just the, the way that so much of the dialogue was completely unintelligible. Like I get there are a couple of scenes where we're not supposed to understand the dialogue. I get that. But there were many scenes where we were supposed to under, understand the dialogue that we didn't. I cannot wait to watch it again. And I still like the movie. I mean, I still liked it. So I cannot wait to watch it again this time with subtitles on. So once I do, I will probably give a little follow up. I will probably give a little bit of a follow-up to my second experience with, um, um, with tenant once I have a chance to do that. All right, next up, Daniel writes, with Kathleen Kennedy's contract with Lucasfilm ending in 2021, so they say, uh, with no word or announcement on her renewing it, who is most likely candidate to succeed her if she steps down as president of Lucasfilm? How long does transition of position take? The reality is this. It will probably be somebody we've never heard of, and that's a good thing. I don't need a great filmmaker as the head of the studio. We need somebody who is a great executive. That's what we need. Lucasfilm needs somebody who is a great executive. Who had ever heard of of Kevin Feige when he kind of took the helm of Marvel? No, nope, no, no. Average person had ever heard the name Kevin Feige. He was just a guy who understood the business, um, understood, you know, how to get things done. He was always thinking, he was always, he's an executive. He's also very much a creative, but he's very much an executive. If there was going to be a recognizable name, um, to me, it's Jon Favreau. Because when I watched that documentary series on how they made Mandalorian season one, you could see John Favreau was the executive of that thing, working with his handpicking his directors, working directly with his directors, and interacting with the t- technology, bringing in his own creative angle as well. He was every bit. When I was watching that, I saw I didn't see John Favreau the filmmaker. I saw John Favreau the executive, and doing an incredible job, mentoring guys like Dave Filoni and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard and you know, empowering his directors to do what they need to do, making sure he properly communicated his vision about what he wanted this overall show to be. And now he's going to be overseeing Mandalorian, uh, uh, Ahsoka Tano, um, Rangers of the New Republic. He's going to be overseeing all of these things. I think from all the names that we know and recognize, John Favreau is the logical choice. But I honestly probably think it's going to end up being somebody we don't even know. Somebody who's not a famous filmmaker, somebody who's just a great executive, somebody who is great at the administration, who knows how to empower people, who knows how to put the right people in the right places to give them the highest chance of success, which is a completely different skill set than just being a director or filmmaker. Right, so my guess is it'll probably be somebody we never heard of, and if it is somebody we've heard of, my money will probably be on John Favreau, and I'm happy either way. I'm happy either way. uh James L.H writes, hey, John, just seen and enjoyed Kim's convenience. We we're just talking about Kim's convenience. Uh, nice to see season five coming. next is Parks and Rec and Shits Creek dude, two of my all time favorite shows, uh but I can't decide. Which is first. So, John, uh, as the best pundit around, can you help with this momentous choice? Hope some honesty, flattery, some honest flattery helps. Okay. So here's what I think, James. In both Kim's convenience or in Schitt's Creek, I should say, and Parks and Rec, the first seasons are by far their weakest seasons. Season one of Parks and Rec is really its weakest season. It truly finds its footing in season two. Uh, Same can be said of Schitt's Creek. But in both cases, season one is still great. It'll take you a couple of episodes of both shows to kind of adjust your brain wavelengths to what it is the show is and how it's working. But once you get a few episodes into both of those shows, you're a winner on each. I would say the older show is Parks and Rec. So I'd say start there. Start with Parks and Rec. But here's the great thing. It's a half hour show. Watch Two episodes of Parks and Rec and two episodes of Shit's Creek and you'll you'll be golden. But if you want to do one at a time, I would say start with the one that came out first, which is Parks and Rec. All right, but you're gonna love both of them, James. At least I hope you love both of them. All right, next up, Boris. Boris writes Moira to Johnny. Speaking of Shit's Creek, Moira to Johnny. Yes, dear, I'm sure you killed them. Enters dramatic Moira voice with all the venom venom of a silkworm. I'm telling you, hers, Moira is so amazing um thank you for convincing me to watch this show halfway through season five in two weeks this show is hilarious and so heartwarming as well again talking about schitt's creek that's the thing that makes this show so unbelievably special not only is it gut rippingly hilarious like a parks and rec it is amazingly heartwarming and amazingly charming and there are there are episodes that Anne literally cried. Not like laugh so hard she cried, although that happened a lot. There are parts in this show that literally made her cry, right? Like anybody who watched the show, okay, for those of you who've seen Shit's Creek, you'll know what I'm talking about. The open mic night with simply the best. I just say that. If you've seen Shit's Creek, you instantly know what I'm talking about, and you remember that moment and how heartwarming it was. The wedding, of course, was incredible and amazing. Uh, The Christmas episode was so heartwarming, but it's all done within the context of being this rippingly hilarious show that you just love all the characters. And I'm glad you like it too, Boris. All right, next up, K Major sends in $20 to support the channel. Thank you for that, K Major. Appreciate that, man. And he writes one of two, Uh, John, do we not understand that Anakin being married and having children was actually against the Jedi code? Oh, yeah, no, we understand that. Uh, Luke being powerful was due to a lineage that wasn't even supposed to exist. I was all in with Last Jedi's message of anyone can have the force. Uh, I feel it's what draws us to the idea of the force. Uh, No one needs to be related. It's how the force is able to be all over the galaxy. If it was all lineage, it wouldn't be isolated to one neighborhood, which would be dumb, I think. And remember, I don't even think... I don't think that Luke being powerful in the force was because he had a force user for a father. I think it was just the emperor foresaw that that child would be strong in the force, And now that we know a little bit more about Anakin's origins, that probably had more to do with it than anything else. But this is why I always resist and fight against this idea that, oh, a Jedi has to be a lineage of somebody else. The Jedi never came from lineage. That's the thing. Jedis couldn't get married and have kids. They would just discover a kid somewhere that the force happened to move through. And they recognize that the force is strong with that kid. We're going to take that kid to the temple through no birthright, no anything. They just had it. And they would recognize it, identify it. Forget the stupid midichlorian thing. But they would just recognize it, identify it, and take the kid to the temple, assumingly with the parent's permission, um, to be trained as a Jedi. And so I'm absolutely 1,000% on the same page with you on that, K-Major, 1,000%. So many people forget that little tidbit, and I think it's very, very important and good that you bring it up. So thanks again, man, and thanks for supporting the channel on that level, man. I appreciate that, dude. All right, next up, K-Major also writes, John, bro, I don't know what schlocky is, but that emo Peter scene is cringy AF. I thought we were being punked the whole time and was thinking the real a movie was coming out later i may sound crazy but i saw spider-man 2 in theaters eight times i had high expectations spider-man 2 listen I, I, you guys have heard me say it a million times spider-man 2 for the longest time i think an argument can be made was the best um like just simply the best comic book movie of all time for a couple of years for for a number of years it's fantastic but yeah listen i i am with you k major there's just no getting around listen i think spider-man 3 sam Raimi's Spider-Man Three has redeeming elements i don't think it's as bad as many people make it out to be it's still bad it's bad but it's not as bad i think personally as many people make it out to be however that there is no exaggerating how bad and awful that whole emo peter thing was it was it was horrendous. It was like it was completely out of a different movie. It's like they stopped the movie, so Saturday Night Live could do a funny skit about the movie, dropped it into the movie, and then they picked up with the movie after that. It was completely awful. there's no way around. It was completely awful. Uh, I am hiding rights. Hi, hey John. Huge fan of Indiana Jones. Stoked about the new movie, but I disliked Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Making Shia LaBeouf similar to Indy did not work. For comedy, he should have been like uh, Connery. Totally opposite to Indy. Thanks. You know what? Here's the thing with me with Indiana Jones and Kingdom of the C- Crystal Skull. I think if that was the exact same movie, but it wasn't called Indiana Jones, it was called Dr. Herman Forrester and the Adventures in the Jungle. If it was just called that, and it wasn't Indiana Jones, I think Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a perfectly good, fun little adventure film. But it was terrible as an Indiana Jones film. As an Indiana Jones film, it was just awful. And listen, to Spielberg, Shia LaBeouf is the next Tom Hanks. Spielberg, and you know what? He may not be wrong but he wasn't the right guy to cast for that role. And they didn't take the right approach with it. And it's always broken my heart that uh, I'm I'm freezing on the name of the writer, but the guy who directed Shawshank Redemption, I got to look it up because I'm feeling um, uh, who directed Shawshank Redemption. I, I can't believe I'm freezing on his name. Frank Darabont. Because remember, Frank Darabont had written a script for indiana jones 4 and harrison ford liked it and steven spielberg liked it but all three of them had to agree george lucas didn't want it and then george lucas kind of oversaw getting his own version done and i've always wondered what would that frank darabont i i've i've heard people have copies of that script I don't. If anybody does have a copy of that Indiana Jones script that Frank Darabont wrote wrote, that George Lucas vetoed, unfortunately, I would love to see it. I've always wondered what would that movie have looked like. Couldn't have been any worse than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I'll I'll tell you that. All right, next up uh benjamin uh writes in and he tipped in twenty dollars thank you benjamin for supporting the channel that level man um hey john and rob who's probably not here right now obviously he's not here right now uh do you think sometime in the future maybe 15 to 20 years from now we will see a a series set 500 uh years after the battle of yavin with master grogu training younglings at his own jedi academy maybe a mandalorian youngling i don't think so the main reason i don't think so is. Listen, the fact that baby Yoda is a baby in Empire and in Return of the Jedi. When we hear Obi-Wan and Yoda talking about the fact that that's that's it, like Luke Skywalker's it, The Last Hope. And then when Yoda said, "No, there is another." George Lucas made it clear that it was referencing potentially Leia. Leia could be the other one, maybe. There was no talk of Grogu. There was no talk of another, you know, uh, force user of his species out there. Now, maybe the way around that is the fact that at the time, even at the time of A New Hope, Grogu is still uh, an infant. He's still a baby. Right, He's still going to be quite young, even 10 years after the events, 15 years after the events, four years after the events, doesn't matter how old he would have been. He would have been at that time of Return of the Jedi, five years younger, he's completely just a baby. So maybe he just, that wasn't even counted, maybe. But I, I mean, I don't know. Then why is there no mention of you know, you know Grogu 30 years later? When we get to the time period of the first order and the time period of the Force Awakens, because by that point he's kind of a preteen, right? Thirty years later, Grogu's probably like preteen in Baby Yoda years. I'm—I don't know. I'm guessing. I'm making things up. I don't know the biology of that creature though well. But no, my guess is there will be no show that takes place. I mean, there may be a show or a movie that takes place five hundred years after the events. Of uh, the, the rise of Skywalker, but I I don't think I don't think we're going to see the adult version of Grogu. I don't know that. Nobody's told me that. I'm just I'm just speculating like a fan, like anybody else. But I don't think we will. I think Baby Yoda is Baby Yoda and will always be Baby Yoda. I think at any rate, Benjamin. Good question, man. Murray Reich writes: uh, Thanos to Loki. No resurrections this time. Disney Plus. Hold my beer. Yeah, I know, right? It was like it was. It was like Disney was turning to us as the audience and saying, "Yeah, we get it. We kept killing and bringing Loki back when they had um when they had Thanos say, "No resurrections this time." I mean, that was clearly a message to the audience. But then what happened one year later? Look, everybody, Loki's back. I mean, they it's the Marvel fake death universe, right? Don't get me wrong, I'm excited about the new Loki show. I totally am. Especially now that that uh, deadline is reporting that Lady Sif, Jamie Alexander, is going to show up in the Loki show, which I, th- I mean she's a fellow Asgardian. I think that would be great if she does. But uh, yeah, keep fake deaths, man. Uh, anonymous viewer just sends in seven dollars. Thank you so much, anonymous viewer. Another anonymous viewer writes in: I didn't expect AMC to go bankrupt just a year after Movie Pass failed and died. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, look, let's be clear though: if AMC does go bankrupt which is what looks like it's going to happen, but it's not guaranteed yet. There's still some hope, but it looks like that's what's going to happen. It won't be because the business failed. It will be because the pandemic hit and took away their product and took away their customers. I keep using a fish market as an example. If you operate a fish market, you cannot survive one of two things. You can't survive not having any customers coming to your fish market. But you also can't survive if you do have customers, but you don't have any fish to sell them. AMC theaters and all the movie theaters have been put in a position where they've lost both. They have no customers because people can't go out. And they have no product because don't, studios don't have movies to send to them. And the few movies they do have right now, they're holding them back because there's no customers and they, some of them are putting them on the streaming. So suddenly they're a fish market with no fish and nobody to buy the fish, even if they had the fish. You know what I mean? It's tough. So we got to remember if AMC or any of the theaters do go under, it's not because they failed. It's not because they did something wrong. It's because they faced a historic, unprecedented event in this industry that had never been before seen. That stretched way longer than any of us thought it would, and that would ultimately be what uh, what kind of sinks it. All right, breaking news: writes a new Star Wars Disney Plus series is coming out. It's 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 called "I Got a Stiffy," a love story directed by Porkins. Ah, Porkins. Now, you say Porky, but I'm guessing you meant by Porkins. I got a stiffy. I'm telling you, that's going to be a hit song, man. It's going to be an absolute hit song. Uh, Russell Amador. Thanks for that breaking news. Russell Amador writes, Hey, John, I know it's barely Tuesday, but damn it, Friday couldn't get here quick enough. Uh, The season two finale of Mandalorian is upon us and what a ride season two has been so far. Hopefully, they end it on a high note and we see uh, what loose ends they have for season three. That's the only... Listen, I am not one of these Star Wars fans that's like, they have to do this at the end and this, and this guy has to show up. I'm not one of those. I'm just like, hey, Jon Favreau, just give me what you got. Show me what you've come up with. The only thing I ask is have a definitive ending to the season, just like last season did, and introduce a new wrinkle that will lead us into the next season. Last season, they wrapped it up. Mando escapes, takes baby Yoda with him, all that kind of stuff. And then this one little thing, Moff Gideon survived the crash and he comes out with it, not just with himself, but with the Darksaber. Awesome. You wrapped up the story and he introduced new ways, new directions for us to go in the next season. What I don't want to have happen is have for three episodes tease that some Jedi out there in the universe got Grogu's message is going to show up and then have them show up with like their back to the camera and that's the last scene we get, right? Mando and Big Grogu look over and, and saying, somebody called for me and it turns and we don't get to see who it is. Like show us who it is and then end the season, right? That's that's the only thing I hope they do is Russell. It's the only thing I hope they do and, the, and that they do properly. I hope. All right, next up. Uh, What do you think the long term consequences may be for Warner Brothers and their standing with the industry? Do you think it is likely we will see new WB projects from Nolan and other top tier talent and directors? Listen, at first, when this all started and it was just Nolan that was upset, I thought, you know what? They'll work this out. They will iron out their differences. They'll talk behind the scenes. They'll get this straightened out and we'll see them work together. But now that I've seen just how big of a deal it's become and how many other directors feel impacted and um, how many people in the industry are really upset with them. I think it's gotten quite bad. It all depends on what does Warner Brothers do moving forward. That's going to be the key. Do they, you know, or do they initiate talks with everybody? Do they sit down with everybody? Do they try to compromise? Maybe they take some of the films like Godzilla versus Kong and Dune and maybe one or two others and say, okay, look. There are some of these that we just don't think are going to do well in theaters. We want to put them straight to HBO Max. But fine, legendary pictures. You paid for these movies. We'll put the, like If there's some compromise, I don't think there's going to be long-term consequences. If there's no compromise, there could be. So right now, we're only in the beginning days of it. This Honestly, this is something that could blow over in two weeks if the right people have the right conversations. It could literally be blown over in two weeks. If Warner Brothers and reps from the DGA and all that kind of stuff all sit down, they come to an understanding and they work out some kind of deal and compromise, this could all be blown over with just a couple of quick conversations. Or it could go completely nuclear, where more directors come out, speak out against them. We're seeing even more directors in the last couple of days have been coming out and speaking against Warner Brothers. Uh, if the DGA decides to boycott Warner Brothers, if that happens, then the WGA, uh, the Writers Guild of America, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, they could join them. I I mean, it could get nuclear. It's just too early to tell right now. So let's see how it unfolds. Good question though, McKinley. Uh, Let's see. Next up, Casey McNatt writes, Hey, John and Rob, with WandaVision, Spider-Man 3, and Doctor Strange being rumored uh, of being a three-part story. It's not rumored. Kevin Feige, he said, they all have one interconnected story. Now, I don't think it's going to be like part one, part two and part three, but I do think it's going to be an interconnected story. That's what Kevin Feige has said. Uh, How likely is that both WandaVision and Spider-Man three end with cliffhangers going into Dr. Strange two? That's never really what Feige has done. Feige has never done it that way. Even when you look at infinity war, infinity war did not end on a cliffhanger. Infinity war ended with the bad guy winning period. End of the movie. Bad guy won. And it ends with Thanos sitting on his hillside looking out on the fields and enjoying, you know, his victory, whatever, right? He makes sure, Kevin Feige makes sure that every movie is a complete viewing experience with open doors that lead into the next. And I believe that Kevin Feige will carry that on. It's not going to be, oh, no, coming to the conclusion of the movie and the end, everybody. Woo! you're going to have to come see the next movie to figure out how that scene just ends. The, Kevin Feige's not going to do that to his audience. He never has. I don't think he ever will. He understands you have to make every single movie a complete experience in and of itself, even when it's going to lead into another one. Make it a complete experience in and of itself. That's one of the things he's done so well. And that's one of the things I think he'll continue to do. All right, next up. Anthony writes, uh, with Hayden Christensen returning as Darth Vader in the Obi Wan series. Do you think we'll have moments where he'll have his helmet off and see a burned up Anakin? And if so, do you think that will take away from the mystique of Darth Vader? No, we've seen we've seen Darth Vader without his helmet a number of times, right? Both in animated form and in live action form. Um, so I don't think it would kill the mystique. I very listen because look, if we don't have any scenes. First of all, we don't even know how they're going to use Hayden Christensen in, in this thing. We, don't, we have no idea how they're going to use him. But if you're going to bring him in, if you're just going to have scenes with, say, Vader with the helmet on, then there's you don't need to bring back Hayden Christensen. You don't have to pay Hayden Christensen the money you're going to have to pay him to come back. Not that he's going to cost $5 million or anything, but you can literally just get a day actor for $100 a day to come in and be in the Darth Vader suit right? So I got to believe at least once, maybe more, we will have face-to-face conversations between Obi-Wan and Anakin. I don't know that for a fact. I've not been told that by anybody in the industry. That is just me speculating. But it just seems to me, if you're going to bring Hayden Christensen back, what's the point of bringing him back if we don't get to see his face at all? So yeah, there's that. All right, next up. Um, Luke 1, 2, 3, 4 writes, Hey, John, since movie studios and snack vendors pay the theater's money for ads, spots, and trailers to be played in front of the movies, do you think we will see an increase in the number of ads we see since the theaters need extra revenue if they survive? No, I don't. Um, and it's actually one of the things that I talk about in my uh, documentary. We talk about like the number of trailers that play because here's the thing. Stud- theaters, I should say, will need more revenue. Yes, but what they need more than just revenue theoretically is they need consumers. They need customers. You can't have revenue without customers. And therefore you cannot employ revenue generating ideas that also drive away customers. When the theaters fully back up are back up and running and open back up their doors. I mean, fully to it. They need to be all about for the first few months about getting people back into theaters and loving their experiment, their experience in the theaters, reminding them why the theaters are the best experience of all time. What you cannot do is open your doors back up, have everybody come in and then hit them with 45 minutes of commercials. Cause then they ain't coming back. Then they ain't coming back so they're going to have to walk that line of understanding that we've got to resist the urge to get a quick cup a quick couple of extra dollars now and invest in getting long term dollars By making sure these customers love coming to the theaters and will come back again in three weeks and then come back again three or four weeks after that, and then we'll come back again a month after that and bring a couple of friends with them. We got to look at long-term money as opposed to short-term money, especially when the short-term money can kill your long-term prospects. So I, I think they'll be smart enough to know they can't just go hog wild and suddenly put up like 35, 45 minutes of trailers and commercials and it, that'll just kill them. That'll kill them. All right. Next up. Jesse writes, I know weekly releases for streaming series is better for driving subscriptions and has worked great for Mandalorian, but seeing as how Mando is very episodic in nature, do you think Marvel's six part movie approach would be better suited for a binge release? Nope, I don't. I really do think this is the best way to do it. I mean, cause look at, look at us as fans, the experience we've been able to have with Mandalorian. Fandom, one of the great things about fandom is that it extends beyond just when we watch the property. The experience of fandom starts with watching the property and then extends out to talking about the property and celebrating it with other fellow fans, whether it's in person or online or whatever, and then hyping up for the next one and then getting to repeat the cycle. The magic of Mandalorian is that. It comes out, look, I'll go, I keep using um, Punisher on Netflix, right? Punisher on Netflix was terrific. Both seasons were terrific. But I remember season one of Punisher came out uh, with John Bernthal and it was wonderful. And it dropped all the episodes at the same time, like Netflix always does. And I, I binged it and it was great. And a week later, nobody was talking about it anymore. Nobody was talking about it anymore. It's all anybody could talk about for the first three or four days that it dropped. And then after that, that was it. That was it. Nothing more to see here. Nothing more to talk about. Nobody was talking about it anymore a week later. Mandalorian has been a completely different experience. Everybody tunes in and watches The Mandalorian the day that it drops. And then everybody talks about it. And then everybody buzzes about it and everybody gets excited about it. And then after they've done that for a couple of days, they start to turn their excitement to talking about what's going to be in the next episode. So they talk about, buzz about, rage about the last episode. And then they spend the next couple of days talking about, buzzing about, raging about what's going to come in the next episode. And their viewership grew and grew and grew because that enthusiasm, that energy, that buzz, that momentum kept flowing from week to week. And then the next episode comes out and it all starts again. And then the next episode comes out and it all starts again. Disney is all about that. They don't just want people to sit down binge watch, you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier and have nobody talking about it a week later. They want Falcon and Winter Soldier to be the topic of conversation for 2 months cuz that's what it is with Mandalorian. A season of Mandalorian comes out and it is the topic of conversation for 2 months solid. And that's what they want with WandaVision, that's what they want with Falcon and Winter Soldier, that's what they're going to want with She-Hulk and Ms. Marvel and everything else and Loki, that's what they want. It works better um as it works better for the fan community too. It works way better for the fan community. The other big advantage for the fan community is this, when, you know, um, Punisher dropped, not everybody watched in the first couple of days, but you never knew when people were on the same spot as you, right? You could have been on episode seven. Meanwhile, somebody out, your buddy, may only be on episode two because they didn't have a full weekend off that they could just sit down and binge the entire thing, right? So everybody's at different places. The other great thing this week-to-week thing has done is that we're all on the same page. There's like a 24-hour period every week where some people have seen the newest episode and some people haven't. But for the most part, we're all on the same page. When we're on week four, nobody has seen episode six yet. Right, We're all the same page and we're all geeking out and it increases the fan experience and it makes for a much more successful run for the network itself. So yeah, I got to say, I think movies are one shot things. You want to do a movie, make a movie and we watch that in one shot. But if you're going to make a series, the week to week thing is absolutely the best way to go. And I say that as a binger. I'm a binger myself, but the week to week series, it has been proven statistically multiple times that it is absolutely the best way to go all right next up uh let's see uh adrenaline knight writes adrenaline knight writes my theory on michael keaton's role in morbius he's he's playing himself filming homecoming and just knows morbius wouldn't that be a kick in the teeth (laughs) wouldn't wouldn't that be funny if like michael keaton stars as michael keaton i don't think they're doing that I don't think they're doing that, but imagine that the reason he's wearing the same outfit as he was in Spider-Man Homecoming is that it's actually our world Morbius takes place in, and he just runs into Michael Keaton hanging out on set. Obviously, I do not think that's what they're doing, but oh my God, how meta would that be if they went that way, Adrenaline Knight? Now, listen, if that happens, I will remember. I will remember you wrote that in. 95% chance that's not what's happening. But if it does, I will remember the day you wrote that in. All right. Night uh, also writes, everyone is missing the obvious choice for Spider-Man's lawyer. Vinny Gambini. And his aunt just happens to call him up. I guess Mariso Tomei was in my my cousin Vinny. Ah, uh, see what he did there? It's all interconnected, man. It's all interconnected. All right. Next up, we've got uh, the Conan Forever writes, I'm a combat sports guy. Me too. UFC and boxing. I'm curious about hockey and I have YouTube. So why not? What classic game team or player do you recommend a person new to the sport? I do hear that they can actually fight on the ice with skates. Sounds fun. Yes. Lots of fighting in hockey, although they do not use their skates. Although I remember this one time. I'm trying to remember the name of the goalie. He was, I believe it was from the Buffalo, Buffalo Sabres where, um, a guy Tripped in front of him on the ice, and as he tripped, his foot went flying in the air and literally slit the goalie's throat, and like blood poured out. And amazingly, he survived. They got him to the hospital, and he survived. I'm trying to remember. It was a Sabres goaltender, if I'm I'm trying. Oh, I feel terrible. I can't remember the name. Anyway, if you want to look up some great stuff, look up the Canada the Canada Cup series with Lemieux and Gretzky. Look up any of the stuff, the highlights of the career of Lemieux or Gretzky. Um Just. I mean, hockey is the most beautiful sport in the world. It is the ultimate combination of speed, endurance, strength, power, skill, like all of it. It's its just a crazy, beautiful, awesome game uh, that is better enjoyed in person than watching on TV. But uh, hockey is uh, is God's sport, man. It is God's sport. And God bless you, O'Connor, for wanting to look into it a little bit. All right, next up, uh, Kalis Menon writes... John, did you like that Michael that Michael Bay movie, The Island? I think it's a bit underrated. Also, I'm going to watch Infinity War and Endgame in one sitting over the break. What do you think of the idea? Well, yeah, watching Infinity War and Endgame in, in one straight watch is a, yeah, I've done it. Absolutely. It's a good, fun watch. Um, the Island is a movie I go back and forth on, to be honest with you. It's one of those, it's not a great movie. It's not a great movie. Hugh McGregor's in it, though. Um but hold on, let me just bring this up here. Uh, it's not a great movie. And it, it wasn't Scarlett Johansson in that too? Hold on a second. Yeah, it was you, McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. Jaimon Hansu. I totally forgot Jaimon Honsu in that. Michael Clark Duncan, Sean Bean, Steve Buscemi. I mean, it was a great cast and all that kind of stuff. Um, basically where they find out their clones that are bred so their organs can be harvested and all that kind of stuff. I go back and forth between it's pretty good and it's pretty not good. I never feel like it's completely god-awful. I've never felt like it's totally great, but it's one I to go back and forth on a little. It's a movie that had, especially the narrative of it, had more potential than it. It didn't live up to its potential. Let's just say that. And remember, I'm not one of these bash on Michael Bay guys. Michael Bay's got a number of films that I really like, like including Armageddon and The Rock, Pain and Gain, the first Transformers movie. There's actually a bunch of Michael Bay movies I really like. So, I don't, so I'm not trashing on... The island because i want trash on michael bay it's just that eh, i've I've found it not memorable let's put it that way i find the island to be personally not all that memorable but i sway a little bit sometimes feel kind of positive about it sometimes feel kind of negative about it. it depends on the year you ask me i suppose all right an anonymous viewer writes i'm so excited for the expanse season five to premiere tomorrow cannot believe it's premiering tomorrow I seriously just somebody mentioned that the other day that it was just about to open up and I totally forgot about it. And I love that show. It's another one of those shows that you guys told me to try it. You guys told me to try the expanse and I'm so glad they did. I love that show. Uh, It's my favorite show currently running and I can't wait for more the cast story and world building are always spectacular. I agree. Now, I didn't think this last season was their best Personally, I didn't think this this most recent season was their best one yet. But even though I didn't think it was their best, I still really enjoyed it. It's probably maybe the best pure sci-fi on TV right now. Uh, I don't count Mandalorian as pure sci-fi, but there, there's something and the de- definition of that is up for debate, I suppose. But The Expanse to me is like the best pure sci-fi on TV right now. And uh, I cannot wait to start watching it again, Anonymous. All right, next up, Shane Sakia writes Hey, John, I notice you like to use John Wick as a standard when describing badass characters from movies and TV. Well, it's just a good common point of reference. You know what I mean? Uh, I just wanted to remind you that poor John's dog was killed. Brian's daughter was taken. Remember the quote, I will find you and I will kill you. Uh, That's, yeah, that's true. Listen, Liam, that Liam Neeson speech. In taken is about what I am as what I do have is a particular set of skills I mean it is truly an iconic iconic speech and taken's really good and now here's the other thing too I cannot remember where I was and when it was, but I remember watching taken on TV I had already seen it and I had already seen taken too. But we were just hanging out at home and I was watching Taken on TV and then I can't remember if it was TBS or somebody else. And then they just happened to play Taken 2 immediately next. Taken 2 gets bagged on a lot. It's not horrible. Nobody's ever called it like completely awful, but a lot of people don't like Taken 2. Like we all like Taken, but not a lot of people watch Taken 2. And I'm one of those people that when I first saw Taken 2, I'm like, "Ah, this isn't anywhere near as good as the first one. But I'll tell you what, when I watched the two of them back to back, like immediately, like one continuous movie, two suddenly was a lot better. I mean, because it literally picks up right after the end of the first Taken. But I mean, and I can't explain how, I can't quantify it. But when you watch Taken and Taken 2 immediately back to back, Taken 2 gets better than when you watch Taken 2 on its own, say a year separated from when you saw the first Taken. I can't explain how, and I can't explain why, but it just kind of does. But you're right, that one speech that Gleam Neeson gives, I mean, it's it's an iconic moment. It seriously is. One of the great speeches ever. All right, Marsh Life writes, will Abomination look the same in She-Hulk as he did in the movie, or will they change his look like they did with Hulk? I have a feeling he'll probably look roughly the same, only, you know, visual effects have come a long way. Since they did the abomination that Tim Roth is playing, um, and by the way, I don't I don't remember if Kevin Feige ever specifically and specifically and directly said that Tim Roth's abomination will be there. I mean, obviously he's playing the same character, but will he turn into abomination? I don't know. I'm assuming he will. Anyway, I suspect he will look roughly the same, just probably a bit better with more modern visual effects. I was very excited when they said he was coming back because I have said for years, Abomination will be back. They have dropped too many hints. They've made it too clear. Abomination will be back and he's going to be a great antagonist in some movie somewhere. And I'm so glad they're bringing him back. All right. Next up, Mark from the future. (laughs) Right. I like that. Um... Let's see. Hey, John. I was curious. I know Peyton Reed wanted to direct Fantastic Four. Since Watts is and Reed is doing Quantum Mania, do you think they will let Reed introduce the Fantastic Four in some capacity in Ant Man three? Thanks for what you do. That's not the way Kevin Feige works. That's not the way business works. You know, uh, you know, you're a really good director. We'll let you introduce these characters in your movie. That's that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Now, that's not to say. That's not to say that that couldn't be the perfect movie to introduce them in. But they're not going to say, you know what? Peyton Reed, you're a big fan of Fantastic Four. We'll let you introduce Fantastic Four in your movie, even though that doesn't really fit our plans. It could be that introducing the Fantastic Four in the next Ant-Man was always the plan. Could be. It might be a perfect introduction. Or we just... Listen, I also think we're going to get a new origin story for Fantastic Four. And that might be better served just straight up in their own movie. So... I would put the over-under of Fantastic Four becoming being introduced in Ant-Man 3 at 15%. Not the worst odds, but very unlikely. I think they need a clean start with Fantastic Four, with a movie of their own that delves into their origins. And I just don't know that you can do that with a quick intro in Ant-Man. Maybe they can, though. Never know. Maybe they can. Uh, let's keep our eyes open for that. It's an interesting theory, Mark. All right, next up. Caesar Rivera writes, my favorite directors of all time, David Lynch, David Fincher, Steven Spielberg, Shane Black, Edgar Wright, Samer, I love your list so far, uh, Stanley Kubrick, Denis Villeneuve, Christopher Nolan, Wes Anderson, Vince Gillian, Taika Wattiti, and Quentin Tarantino. Thoughts they're all great. Those are all great directors. That's, a, that's an excellent, excellent killer's row of directors right there. A lot of them are, they're all very, very different uh from each other there's very different stylistic stanley kubrick is a totally different type of director than a shane black is and all that kind of stuff it's an excellent excellent list obviously to me steven spielberg is i think spielberg is the greatest filmmaker of all time uh but man i'm curious you didn't put a lot of people who put together a list like this would also meant, mention um marty scorsese and i noticed that you didn't that's interesting but still a killer lineup of directors it's a fabulous fabulous list caesar rivera well done all right next up james Argento writes when will rogue squadron take place during episodes th- four through six post episode six post episode nine i think post episode nine really that's not what most people think uh, because post six is being explored in Favreau shows and post nine will be given writers more freedom to tell a story, allow them to use characters like Poe, Rose, uh, uh Billy Lord, who's of course, uh, um, uh, Carrie Fisher's daughter. That's true. Here's the only problem though. Here's the only problem in a post episode nine. Post episode nine, the first order, you can't do first order again, right? They've been beaten again. They've been beaten again. They're gone. They're destroyed. Blah, blah, blah. If you're going to do war like Rogue Squadron, you need war, right? You need a war going on. Are they ready to introduce another galactic level threat in the universe immediately following the events of Star Wars episode nine, the rise of Skywalker? I don't know. Unless they want to use that opportunity to introduce the Yuzang Vong, which, you know, pulling that out of Legends if they wanted to. That's a possibility, I suppose. But listen, I'm all for it if they do. I just find it a little bit unlikely. Um, I find it a little bit unlikely. Now, listen, there are a lot of years that separate the end of Return of the Jedi and the beginning of The Force Awakens, right? There's a lot of years there. The Mandalorian, ranges of the New Republic, Ahsoka, those, that's all taken place in like the first five, six years after the fall of the Empire and the end of Return of the Jedi. That still leaves like 20 plus years of space if they want to. Or it could be done pre, pre the events of Star Wars A New Hope. Or like a lot of Star Wars role-playing games, it could happen between the events of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Right there's there's time period to explore there, or between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, the one that fascinates me most is post Episode Nine, being caught up in the present. They're just who's your galactic level threat that literally you'd be having the new New Republic going to war against. I don't know that might be pretty ambitious. We'll have to see. Uh, and hell, it could be even it could be old or a High Republic era. They could say they had a rogue squadron back in the High Republic era. I don't think that's likely, but, uh, but again, yeah, but maybe, maybe James, maybe. All right. Next up, not amused writes, Hey, John, I'm fed up with Depp and heard more concerned with the actors living on charity due to theater cancellations. Uh, they are, ri- they are still rich. Actors are replaceable. World will not fall apart if they are compared to others struggling in your field been very let me try this again. Hi, John. Fed up with Depp and Heard. More concerned with actors living on charity due to theater cancellations. Not quite sure what we're talking about here. They're still rich. Actors are replaceable. World will not fall apart if they are. Uh, compared to others struggling in your field, been very lucky. I don't know what I honestly don't know what we're talking about that actors are living on charity. I. I have a feeling like you're making a good point in there somewhere. I'm just I'm just the way you're communicating. I'm not, I apologize not amused. I can't I can't address what it is you're saying cuz I'm not really clear on what it is your point is um unfortunately. So, oh, sorry about that, man. But if you guys know if you guys think you've picked out what it is not amused is talking about, um feel free to respond to him in the comment section. Let him let uh, let them know what you think. All right. Next up. Wakandan forever writes mortal Kombat. i am pumped i didn't know it was officially rated r uh it is oh yeah they talked about making that rated r for a long time it is my favorite video game franchise i love the original film knowing they are doing it with the blood and guts that are in the game's nose for has me hyped finish him for all this victory listen having finishing moves is not going to make the movie any better let's just be clear about that having scorpion rip out a guy, rip off a guy's head with his spine dangling from it is not going to make the movie any better. But it'll give us some moments of, of some big fun. It'll give us it's still got to be a good movie. You still have to make a good movie. Somehow, someway, the original Mortal Kombat found a way to be totally awful and yet make us love it anyway. I mean, they they just found some kind of magic sweet spot because that movie is terrible. But I love it. I absolutely love it. Even though it's absolutely terrible. Um, why should I? Anyway, this new one, they've got to... I'm a little bit nervous about the new one, though. What kind of guy? I tell you, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm I'm okay with the idea of a first-time director. I'm okay with the idea of a first-time writer. Having a first-time director and a first-time writer on the same film. It makes me a little nervous. Just, just a little bit nervous. I'm still stoked to see it because it is Mortal Kombat. The question is, will the soundtrack be anywhere near as good as the soundtrack to the original Mortal Kombat? Because the soundtrack to the original Mortal Kombat, I don't care if the movie was bad and we loved it whatever, the the soundtrack to the original Mortal Kombat was awesome. Be Mine Sister Salvation Juke, joint, Jezebel. I mean, that the soundtrack is so good. Do, do hast. I mean, the soundtrack is amazing. I hope the soundtrack is one-tenth as good as the soundtrack to have been. Maybe I should do an entire episode where I just sing and recite the entire soundtrack to Mortal Kombat. Anyway, uh, the Kev writes... Hey, John, I don't think Lucasfilm is done with the sequel era characters, especially Rey. She's the heir to the Skywalker legacy. So how do you just ignore that? Galaxy's Edge is built around the sequels as well. Favreau and Filoni can fix anything. You give up on it because it didn't work. Listen, at some point, you've got to go, hey, look, we made these three movies. They were ridiculously successful. They each made over a billion dollars at the box office. One of them made over $2 billion at the box office. Actually, one of them is still the record holder for the highest grossing film in the U.S. in box office history. There's still people that forget that. People think it's Endgame. It's not. It's actually Star Wars uh, The Force Awakens. Holds the domestic U.S. box office record all time. Um, Endgame has the more important worldwide total. But for domestic U.S. box office, it is, by a good margin, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Anyway. You've been you've made a lot of money with them, but the fact of the matter is they declined. And it got to the point now that I think the audiences just don't want to see more. And I don't mean everybody, but a good chunk of the audience doesn't want to see any more with these characters. They all started great. The Force Awakens is fan-fucking-tastic. I love that movie. I love that movie. But their lack of a plan eventually eroded the quality because you get into the last Jedi, the second one, which I still liked. There's parts of it. I loved, but there's also parts of it. I had real issues with. And overall, I I enjoy it. I like, I, I make no apologies for it. I like the last Jedi, but there are parts of it that I took real issue with. As a matter of fact, when I came out of the world premiere, the very first thing I tweeted when I came out of the premiere of the the uh, the Last Jedi, it was um, I believe the tweet was basically, um, "There's this whole Casino Planet thing that's really dumb. The way they use Benichel del Toro. I mean, you got Del Toro in it. You got to do something good with them. And the, and the character was just lousy anyway. But then you get into the Rise of Skywalker, and the the it came to full their lack of planning and their lack of a strategy." And the consequences of them just winging it really came to fruition. And it, the bottom just fell out. And and there are those of you who are watching this video that really like The Rise of Skywalker. And that's great. I'm not trying to yuck on your yum. I'm just talking about my own personal experience with it, which was tremendously disappointed. I was very disappointed with the movie. And it, it is what it is. And so it doesn't matter that you did this with Galaxy's Edge. And it doesn't matter that you did this and that and the other thing. I I just, there's nowhere left to go with Ray. There's just nowhere left to go. You have to understand in business that at some point it is best now to take the win, cut bait, and move on. They made over a billion dollars with each of those films. Time not to push it anymore. Take the win, but understand there were massive discrepancies in... um, in the promise versus the deliverance, and move on. And you know, I, I don't think Daisy Ridley is all that hyped about coming back to Star Wars anymore at this point, anyway. So, really, I, I think it's time—it's uh, time to go. And I think they are—I I think they will come back to the time period. But John Boyega is not interested in coming back to play Star Wars anymore. If you've listened to the interviews with Oscar Isaac, he's not interested in coming back to play Poe anymore. I really don't think Ray is either i I don't think daisy ridley is and i really don't think lucasfilm is interested in revisiting that they now have properties that people are excited about people are excited about mandalorian people are excited about rogue squadron people are excited about obi-wan kenobi people are excited about the acolyte i mean on and on and on and it's just time to focus now with your Star Wars and all the things people are excited about, and then move on from there. So, anyway, who knows, Kev? You never know. You may be right. You may be right. I just don't think so at this point. But hey, we'll find out as time progresses. Thanks for writing in your thoughts, man. I appreciate that. Okay, next up, Dirty Dan writes, hey john i am excited about the shogun tv show on fx dude that was the most exciting thing to me that came out of that entire uh, disney presentation uh what has been your show slash limited series that fx has put out i thought about starting uh, sons of anarchy but i'm still not sure i've been a fan of archer for years i love your show keep up the great work archer for me is simply the best animated show ever on television o- honestly now, I'm not going to argue with somebody else who who will say family guy. I'm not going to argue with somebody else who might say Simpsons. Those are great arguments to make. And I'm not going to try to change your mind. All I know is that I got introduced to Archer when it was in like season three or four. And I started from season one, episode one. A buddy of mine was over and said, you got to check out the, just just check out one episode of this. And I came, became completely hooked on Archer. Just completely passionately hooked on Archer. And it's my favorite anime, but Sons of Anarchy is in my top three all-time favorite shows. So for me, what was the what's the best series FX have ever done? To me, that's no question. It's Sons of Anarchy. Um, it is in, like I said, it's in my top three greatest shows of all time. My number one favorite show of all time is Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica. And then in the two and three spot in no particular order is Sons of Anarchy and Spartacus. Sons of Anarchy is a masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece. And then once you watch that, watch FX spin-off show, The Mayans, which has also been not as good as Sons of Anarchy, but much better than I thought it would be. And it's also very enjoyable. But man, I cannot wait for that Shogun series, dude. I am very, very stoked for that. Like I said, it was my most excited, most exciting announcement that came out of uh, that Disney presentation for me. All right. Loverboy writes. After all the multiverse news coming from MCU, DC has to catch up. They do kind of have to catch up a little bit. Uh, so who's more likely to show up in Flash? Reeves' Constantine, uh, Halle Berry's Catwoman, Nick Cage's Superman, Shaq Steele, Ryan Reynolds' uh, Green Lantern, Brolin's Jonah Hex, or uh, Devotos Penguin, DeVito's Penguin, LOL. Honestly, but here's the thing. You don't catch up by doing what the other guy is doing. Right. For all we know, these pop up things, by the way, don't forget, DC already kind of announced that they've got, um, they've got things coming to it, it. It's just a gimmick. Honestly, it is just a gimmick. A gimmick can be good. A gimmick can work. A gimmick can bring value to a movie, but a gimmick can only have limited amount of impact. And so I don't think DC needs to look And I don't think this is what you're suggesting either, Loverboy. boy. DC doesn't need to focus on what they how to copy what MCU is doing, or to replicate what the MCU is doing, or to try to do it. Just do your own thing. You know, they're doing their own thing with Michael Keaton coming back, and Ben Affleck coming back, and just continue to do their own thing, and don't worry about what Marvel's doing. Because Marvel doesn't care what you're doing, so you shouldn't care what Marvel's doing. So that's probably the best approach for them to take. All right, final question, then we are all caught up. Stubble McShave writes i don't buy daredevil and spider-man besides rights issues there's a question of tone and ratings cox's daredevil was clearly r-rated with a pretty dark and violent tone i can't see spider-man rated r if daredevil is made less violent people will be mad yeah this is a good argument stubble you you raise a really good point it's not just the matter that netflix has the rights and did they make a deal or not and could this actually happen which it could it could but there's also the question of how does Daredevil even fit into a Spider-Man movie? But, John, uh, in the comics, this isn't the comics. This isn't the comics. How does that Daredevil that we all knew and loved in that Netflix series, that Daredevil doesn't fit into this soup Spider-Man. It doesn't fit into this Spider-Man. Now Kevin Feige can find a way. I mean, absolutely, he can find a way. And these rumors of Charlie Cox coming into the into uh, Spider Man, who knows, might turn out to be true. They very well could. But as of right now, I don't. I don't buy it for now. Um, if we get more actual reports coming from the legitimate news sites, then then I'll buy into it. But right now, I don't really buy into it. Although I acknowledge there is a possibility it could turn out. So I'm not going to jump to a conclusion either way. But you're right, Stubble, you are raising a point that a lot of us haven't been bringing up in this whole discussion, which is, does that daredevil that we saw on the Netflix series, does it even fit into a Spider-Man world? And really, he kind of doesn't. He kind of doesn't, unless you fundamentally lighten up that daredevil, which you're right, that would make a lot of people unhappy if you fundamentally lighten up that daredevil. So I don't know. And then, like I said earlier on, does that mean that Blade is actually Cottonmouth, who was just bit by a vampire and survived the events of Luke Cage? Maybe, maybe. All right, guys, there are more questions left, but there are all the rest of the questions are the ones who came in after we finished today's show. So we're going to stop off there. But for the other questions from Jesse and MD and uh, Evan, do not worry. Uh, of course, don't worry. We're going to get to your questions for the show that they were intended to come into, which is tomorrow's John Campus show. Don't forget to come back and join me and Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett for that. Guys, thanks so much for taking some time out of your evening to check out this companion video. And a special thank you to all you guys who sent in those questions. Number one, because he gave us great fun things to talk about, but number two, you really supported this channel and made this channel possible while you did it. So all of us involved here at the John Campion show, thank you guys very, very much for your support. All right, guys, don't forget to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me for now, guys. My name's John Campion. Until next time, my friends, bye-bye.